Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The Federalist Society has emerged as a far-right powerhouse, reshaping the American judiciary. Many of the Supreme Court's most controversial decisions use information from amicus briefs provided by the Federalist Society or related organizations, briefs which may contain fundamentally inaccurate information. Heidi Prisbola is Politico's award-winning national investigative correspondent and a veteran Washington journalist who regularly breaks exclusive reporting on the White House, Congress, presidential and congressional elections, and most recently, the Supreme Court and the state of democracy at home. She joins us today to discuss her reporting. In January of 2010, the Supreme Court made a landmark decision that would have massive ripple effects throughout the world of political spending and dark money for years to come. The court's Citizens United decision would effectively loosen restrictions on campaign spending and clear the way for anonymous donor dollars to flow into so-called, quote, nonprofit groups. That is the subject of Politico's new reporting involving Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, his wife Ginny, and the multimillionaire conservative judicial activist and lobbyist Leonard Leo. The Senate Judiciary Committee just voted to authorize subpoenas for conservative activist Leonard Leo and Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow. It is part of the Judiciary Committee Supreme Court Ethics Probe. Central to the president's selection of Judge Brett Kavanaugh last night was the Federalist Society. Probably been hearing a lot about this. This is a conservative think tank, a group of conservatives and libertarians who describe themselves as a group dedicated to reforming the current legal order. Hi, I'm Heidi Presbella with Politico. And after covering two decades of DC politics, I'm now covering the future of democracy because it's in peril. Sorry, not sorry. Heidi, welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry. I really appreciate you being here. Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. I am a 20-plus year veteran of D.C. political coverage. I've covered the White House, Congress, and campaigns. And uh, I came to Politico to do investigations. And I said, you know, there's just one thing I've never covered, and that's the Supreme Court. And they said. You're perfect because now we need someone who's covered politics to cover the court. This was right after the decision on the overturn of Roe v. Wade came out and we broke that. And ever since then, I've been digging pretty deep on the court now for at least a year. And it's all brought me back to not just the same network, but in many ways, the same man, which is Leonard Leo. A few years ago, no one really knew, even in D.C., who Leonard Leo is. And now he is behind so much of what's happening with the change of the tapestry of America through the court that it's essential to take a closer look at this man. Covering politics in D.C. for the last 20 years, what is the biggest change you've seen since when you started to now? Oh, what hasn't changed? It's, it was bad. I was there for the dawn of the Tea Party. Actually, I was there 
on 9-11. I was there for the election of George Bush. I was there for the recount in Florida. And each time we thought we were seeing something unprecedented, our politics is in a place where we'll never come back from and it's never going to get any worse than this. Well, with the Tea Party, that really, to me, was the beginning of the arc. And we are now in a place where I would say a lot of the individuals who come to Congress are there making a personal brand and making a name for themselves versus looking at how can we govern, how can we do good things for the American people. And if you really want to get into it, you know, we could talk forever about why that is, whether it's redistricting, whether it's a primary system and the way our primaries work, that has all become not the way that the founders necessarily envisioned this to be. Fundraising, dialing for dollars, talk to any congressman. If they tell you that they don't spend a significant portion of their time on that, they are lying. And all of these things have led to a necrosis of our democracy. And right now, Congress is basically completely gridlocked. It's a zero-sum game unless you control all the levers. Not a ton is going to move. Now, there are some big exceptions to that. With COVID, we did see Congress come together and do some big things to try and help the American people during COVID. But absent that, it has been really, in my opinion, a zero-sum game, depending on whether you control the White House and both branches of Congress. And so what we now have is a Supreme Court that is at the center of a firestorm about whether they are judging based on the law and constitutional history and a certain purview of the law that many conservatives have long believed in, which is originalism. That's precisely what originalists do. Uh, so they picked the favorite part and said it has to be consistent with, or like it has to be a historical analog uh, to this type of rule. Uh, or else it's unconstitutional. And at the end of the day, it's really because the United States doesn't have a history of protecting women from gun violence. Uh, in fact, it used to be like men used to have a legal right to beat their wives under law for way later than you would expect. <laughs> um, and yeah. so there is no historical grounding there to protect women. Uh, and this is gonna be true in lots of different areas for yeah. lots of different historically marginalized people. Let's dive into what we're seeing with the Supreme Court. Anyone who's listened to my podcast for a while knows that every once in a while, when we do an episode on the Supreme Court and what's going on, I always mention the Federalist Society because I knew someone who worked in Senator Whitehouse's office who educated me on the Federalist Society. And it was right around the time when we were seeing right after Parkland and Ben, my producer, and I, we started NORA, which was an organization that went after the NRA. And this guy, Alex, was like, the judicial system also has an NRA. And they're called the Federalist Society. And that was the first time I had ever heard about the Federalist Society. For everyone who is not aware, can you just go through who is the Federalist Society, what they do, why they started? Give us all of the knowledge that you've acquired. The original intent of the Federalist Society was 
look, you had a bunch of conservatives in the early 1980s who felt really ostracized in academia and they didn't have a voice in academia, all these liberal universities. This was kind of the narrative at the time. So we're going to form our own debating society. And the idea was that it would be this very high-minded organization where ideas rule and debate on college campuses would be open to conservatives as well. And so that was the kind of the germ of it. And Leonard Leo and a handful of other individuals were kind of there from the very beginning in informing this, what was ostensibly a debating society. Over the years, it's grown and become really two federalist societies. What you have is that original kind of debating society framework where on a lot of college campuses, you have like a Federalist Society chapter. And then you have what's happened in the wake of Citizens United. Citizens United is the 2010 Supreme Court ruling that opened the doors to what we call dark money in politics. Basically, dark money is that anyone with a lot of money, and at the time we thought it was going to be corporations, but it's turned out it's billionaires, can form what they call a nonprofit, a charitable tax-exempt group, whether it's a charity or it's for the benefit of society. There's different ways they can code it, but they're tax-exempt. And what is billionaires shoveling lots of money into these charitable groups? The only thing they can't do is they can't work on a campaign. They can't advocate for a particular candidate. But boy, you can do a lot absent that. And that is what they are doing. That is what Leonard Leo set up on the side at Federalist Society after Citizens United. I've done a ton of work on this, Alyssa. And going back to the early weeks right before that ruling, Leonard Leo tried to open one of these dark money groups with none other than Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. That didn't go over too well when people found out. And the only reason it really got a lot of attention was because she made a phone call to Anita Hill. Proving that time doesn't heal all wounds, last week Mrs. Thomas called Anita Hill, now a professor at Brandeis University, to ask for an apology for damaging her husband's reputation. According to a source with knowledge of the events, Thomas said in a voicemail, I would love you to consider an apology sometime and some full explanation of why you did what you did to my husband. So give it some thought and certainly pray about this and come to understand why you did what you did. I won't go into that, but she called up Anita Hill, was somewhat menacing and threatening to her. That got out and the dark money group with Leonard and Ginny blew up. But what he's done is created this ecosystem since Citizens United that is just unimaginably vast orbiting the Supreme Court. It has to do with putting the Supreme Court justices there in the first place, organizing these multi-million dollar campaigns around putting these specific justices on the bench. It has to do with Leonard at the same time that he was doing that, advising President Trump on specific names of the individuals he should put on the bench. And now in my most recent story, it has to do with building this thought chamber, as we called it, around the court, which is producing materials and briefs that these specific justices can use to rule in favor of the agenda of the people who put them there in the first place.
This is absolutely horrifying. It's literally like a villain in a movie. You know, it's like that one guy who's trying to destroy the world. The thing about it is this does not exist on the left. And when I did my most recent story, I wanted to be obviously very fair about it and look into what are the constellations on the left? Like, are they doing this too? And each time I went down that road, the answer was the same. It was no, because the left organizes around the court fundamentally differently. They organize around specific issues like the environment, guns, women's rights. They do not have a daddy Warbucks. They do not have a central bank to go to. Now, what is a couple billion dollars worth of dark money, advocacy money, that's not just streaming into the Supreme Court, but into state courts? All right, there's so much to unpack here, but I feel like in order to move forward, we need to really figure out two things, and please help me figure this out. How did this organization become so influential in right-wing politics? What was the vulnerability that allowed them to take such a stronghold over right-wing politics? Is it just money? It's money, but it was also the court in the first place. And this is the incestuous circle that you find yourself in, which is that after Citizens United, it was the same individuals who were plotting and advocating for the court to rule in the way that it did with Citizens United, who then immediately set up these empires of nonprofits and Democrats on the left were really blindsided by it because they did not do the same thing, at least when it comes to advocating around the court. They did set up these groups on issues, but they didn't have this court mechanism, this court ecosystem that they were simultaneously setting up. And that is it in a nutshell. And it corresponds with the rise of the Tea Party movement, right? So you had Congress really after the census and redistricting, you have much more polarized congressional districts and you have the court now as a real focus of how are we going to get things done? Because at the same time, when you look at polling, not right now, of course, but when you look at polling historically, it was like, all right, the demographics are not on our side. This country is becoming more pluralistic. It's becoming less sectarian, less religious. It's more multicultural. So the only way to do this is not going to necessarily be do this, meaning our agenda through the legislative process, but through the courts. And so if you look at like Mitch McConnell, his legacy is getting these Supreme Court justices on. That's why they did everything they did with Merrick Garland and holding back his nomination. Yeah. And that's why they pushed Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett. And we've been hearing about this list, right? This Federalist Society list. I feel like because there's these two arms, and correct me if I'm wrong, because there's these two arms of it, right? There's the debate Federalist Society that is in colleges. I feel like they can identify future lawyers and then place them into internships with conservative judges to imprint that ideology. So we're just basically perpetuating this one belief, this one way of interpreting the Constitution. Is that right? Yeah, you're, I was going to say, you're really paying attention to this because honestly, I don't get a lot of people who understand the scope of it and just how significant the entire assembly line approach to this is. Right. It's like a sports farm team, right? You have scouts out there looking for the right athletes when they're 18, 19 years old to join your organization. It's the same thing. You know, you have these scouts 
looking for future lawyers or future judges or future politicians that they can groom and imprint and place with conservative judges to really shape the future of the country. Let me give you an example. Please. Erin Hawley, she is the wife of Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. And I actually haven't reported this part of it yet, but she can trace the very earliest origins of she and her husband's national profile increasing through a nonprofit organization in Missouri that was in part, or actually largely funded by Leo's empire. Okay. So Josh Hawley comes to Congress and Aaron Hawley is now involved very much so in a number of these watershed rulings, including from the very beginning of getting the Dobbs decision up to the court. They went down to Mississippi and Aaron Hawley worked through this group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is very much funded through one of these dark money vehicles associated with Leo called Donors Trust and helped from the very beginning to get this case going and to get it up to the Supreme Court. Now she's very involved as well in the cases around trying to ban the abortion pill because just banning the procedure of abortion in states is not the end goal. It's banning all abortions, including the abortion pill. Woman from Massachusetts, Ms. Presley is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Ms. Holly, please state for the record, when an ectopic pregnancy ruptures, what are the chances that it can be carried to term? My, under my understanding is that when an ectopic pregnancy ruptures is a life-threatening condition, that's why the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is Excuse not me. an abortion. I'm sorry, sorry, reclaiming my time here. Again, could you just answer the question? When an ectopic pregnancy ruptures, what are the chances that it can be safely carried to term. And, and you know what, just to make this even clearer, I'm looking for a number between zero to 100. Can you give me a, a percentage? Sure, I believe zero ectopic pregnancies, even those that do not rupture, have a chance of uh, uh, successfully being carried to term. That's why the treatment for them is not an abortion. Reclaiming my time. Uh, it seems that there is a deficit in your understanding of reproductive health. So she's working on that with the group as well that she works with, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, this Christian right-wing legal outfit, is involved in so many of these cases, Alyssa, that you're talking about such a small network right now. But to your previous point, it's going to grow because there's a real focus on grooming the next generation. There are these fellowship programs, for instance, that are sponsored through what's called the Catholic Information Center, which is a hub for a far-right prelature of the Catholic Church called Opus Dei. Opus Dei believes in biblical morals, biblical roles for women and men. They are adamantly against same-sex marriage, adamantly against abortion, adamantly against contraception. And yet you have this group that's, as you said, looking for recruiting and grooming the next generation of lawyers who can take these arguments to the court. Okay. You mentioned Holly's wife. I want to start talking about Ginny Thomas. I don't know how it is possible that this story keeps being reported on and yet seems like no one cares. So let's talk about Leonard Leo's work with Ginny Thomas. And for those, again, who don't know, Ginny Thomas is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. 
Right. So they ran in a lot of the same circles. And Clarence Thomas goes back to the very beginning of the Federalist Society with Leonard Leo, who actually worked to try and help Thomas get on the bench in the first place. Not in the same way that he helped because he didn't have money back then, but they've been very good friends ever since. And that is no secret. As part of that, Ginny Thomas had always wanted to be a conservative activist. And that was well known by her friends and her family. And if you look at the speeches that she gave right before the court ruled, or actually it was right after the court ruled on Citizens United, it was like, this is my moment. I've been called to the front lines of this battle and we need to save America. Well, behind the scenes, they had filed paperwork for her to form this nonprofit advocacy group, which was very much aimed at Obama, at Obamacare, the environment, all the issues that you would suspect. The money for it was put up by another name that I know you are familiar with, which is Harlan Crow, who's the billionaire funder who's provided lavish gifts on the Thomases. So the seed money for this, which was like something like half a million dollars, was put up by Harlan Crow. Leo was going to be her co-board director. Again, it fell apart once the public realized, hey, this is a little suspect. Why would you have a Supreme Court justice's wife forming a dark money advocacy group with a judicial activist? So what they did, according to my reporting, and this is, again, like you say, why is no one asking for answers? One of the main issues that I raised in my reporting was after that fell apart, their relationship didn't go away, not even close. What happened was he opened up another, a separate dark money group, or I should say reactivated it. And we only found out last year that he had used that dark money group to pay Ginny Thomas at least in two years, in two calendar years. And the only reason we know that is because the Washington Post obtained some emails or some correspondence, I should say. My reporting suggests that there was no reason why that relationship would have ever ended. And we don't know if it ever did, Alyssa. So the question that I have and that I think Congress has for uh, the Thomases and for Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow, among other questions, is Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow, did you ever stop paying the wife of a Supreme Court justice under the table using a dark money group for we don't know what? What were the services that she rendered? given that this group that they were using to pay her was a group that was filing briefs before her husband. This group was a group that was producing briefs to try and influence the Supreme Court. Please educate my listeners on an amicus brief and what that is and the Federalist Society, as you're talking about the influence in these briefs. Amicus briefs date back to really the Roman Empire, without boring you. They initially were supposed to be an impartial person sitting in the court making observations. Over time, they've evolved. And in our era, they have, since Citizens United, become more vehicles for parties that have an interest in a particular case at the court to try and influence the court, right? So usually it's a lawyer or a legal team or an academic institution And in the period before the court rules on any case, they will receive amicus briefs and they can read those amicus briefs and see how they want to make up their decision about that particular issue. I wrote about amicus briefs in the Dobbs decision being filed by people who were close to the justices, for instance. 
Do the briefs always contain accurate information? Good question. No. Many of the arguments made by Leo-connected parties end up in the court's opinions in divisive cases. Let's look at the decision that shook the nation, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. In that majority opinion, the Supreme Court said abortion was a crime as far back as the 13th century. But a lot of historians disagree. Justice Alito's conclusion runs contrary to what most, I think, are all serious academic historians have concluded. How is that okay? I'm not saying it's okay. And I'm trying to actually point that out in my most recent story, which I think was the peg for us originally deciding to talk because... My most recent story showed how in the Dobbs decision, Justice Alito used what multiple organizations that represent historians call highly incorrect and flawed facts about the history of abortion. And the way that it got in there is that this argument, and the argument is that abortion was a crime ever since the days of medieval England, that abortion has been a crime over those centuries. And the historians were apoplectic. When I started researching the story, I didn't even realize that they had spoken out and issued statements saying, I can't believe that this made it into a Supreme Court ruling because it's just wrong. And you didn't listen to historians. What you did was took that argument out of amicus briefs that were filed by academics are known anti-abortion activists. You are doing God's work, let me tell you. Okay, I just want to make sure that I have this straight. The ruling that overturned Roe, the ruling that is enabling the state of Texas to run women out of the state to receive medical care, life-saving medical care, that was based at least in part on factually incorrect historical information. Is that right? According to historians, of course, I never lived in the 13th century. I don't think you did either. And guess what? I don't think they had ultrasound technology back then either to tell how far along a woman would have been in pregnancy to even say whether she committed a crime. So what I found was this argument that like, yes, Back in the 13th century, at 42 days after conception, it was a crime. Not only do the historians say that was wrong, they say that the entire interpretation of the word crimen in Latin is wrong. That it was never like our modern understanding of what a felony is, where you go to jail and they put you in handcuffs. It was more penance before the church. And the main concern would have been infidelity. Cheated on your husband and you got pregnant, you'd have to go pay penance before the court. But there was not a single felony case prosecuted in the 13th century criminalizing abortion or charging someone with having gotten an abortion. And that's according to the historians. Now, the folks who were on the other end of this, who wrote this, were very upset with the story. They were very upset and they got their allies to retread the arguments that they made. But again, these allies had to put disclaimers that they too take money from Leonard Leo, just to show you how vast this empire is. I feel like the obvious question has a really obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are there any kind of guardrails to prevent false information from reaching the Supreme Court? No one's vetting the briefs. 
And there are now academics who are calling for reforms because a lot of times it's also not just a question of false information because anyone can make an argument. It's not usually so blatant. The concern is more around disclosure as well and transparency because a lot of these groups are like, Ethics and Public Policy Center. Oh, that sounds a noble organization doing good work to promote ethics and public policy. But it's an interested party, again, and this is one of those groups where Leo sits on the board and they produce a lot of briefs that have a certain agenda, have a very conservative religious agenda. You know, as an activist, we hear a lot about reforming the Supreme Court, right? And what we need to do to make the Supreme Court what it was always set out to be. But you never hear about this and how this is an important reform that needs to take place. It almost feels like none of the other reforms that we could put in, like term limits or a code of ethics, all the things that you hear about when we're advocating for a fair Supreme Court, you never hear about that things that go into the amicus briefs have to be factually accurate unless stated that they're an opinion. I think it's assumed. And look, I don't know how expansive it is versus just interpretations that are maybe not in the mainstream of facts. But I think we can all agree we're in an era where many of us do not agree on what are basic facts and what should be considered basic facts. A third of Americans believe that global warming is a hoax. A quarter of Americans believe that vaccines cause autism. A third of Americans believe that humans have always been the same, unchanged and unevolved, and that the government today is hiding natural cures for cancer. So how did we get here? It was a long journey by a multitude of paths. But in just the last half century, two things happened. One was the profound shift in thinking that came out of the 1960s. The other was the beginning of the new internet age. And so the fact that it's making it into Supreme Court briefs in some ways isn't too surprising. But the more surprising thing I think a lot of people aren't aware of is that just the anomaly that is the U.S. Supreme Court, because most Western governments that have a high court have also a code of ethics, or they have some kind of enforcement body or a system for making sure that people aren't compromised, that decisions aren't compromised. And we don't. It's, and it's all going to be voluntary. And that is out of the normal when you look at other Western democracies. Again, people, I think, miss that it's not just, uh, we don't like this. It's not normal. You've reported that the D.C. Attorney General is investigating one of Leonard Leo's nonprofits. Tell us the story about that. Yeah, thanks for asking. That was after a story we did earlier this year, which really outlined that trajectory after Citizens United, where Leonard Leo was still the executive vice president at the Federalist Society and decides to open up all these dark money groups and 
what happens is that he and his friends and his co-workers at Federalist at the same time set up their own LLCs, which LLCs are basically your own kind of side hustle, like your own side business where you can register with the state and open essentially your own company. And what we saw was a lot of he himself, as well as Jonathan Bunch and some others at Federalist set up these side groups where they're taking in just enormous amounts of money. And I did a whole piece on how Leonard Leo had been, you know, he'd live a pretty, like for DC standards, like a very middle-class lifestyle. He had gotten a federal housing administration loan to purchase his house and a decent life, nothing extravagant. But after 2016, when he became Trump's advisor on the court and was taking in just hundreds of millions of dollars into these groups... All of a sudden, he's got a multi-million dollar mansion in Maine, and his friend Jonathan Bunch has a, a mansion on the water in Virginia, and he's making huge contributions to the Catholic Church, and he's got a wine locker at Morton's, and it's like, okay, what's happening here? Look, after the Tea Party started really complaining about the IRS cracking down on them, they said boo. The conservative nonprofit said boo. And the IRS just retrenched. And Lois Lerner, I don't know if you remember her, she was the woman who oversaw nonprofits at the time. She was run out of town. Some people think Obama abandoned her, but it turned out that the IRS was targeting conservative nonprofits because (laughs) they were taking in huge amounts of money. So they've been really spooked ever since then. And so a lot of this is just not being audited, not being tracked. And the amounts of money that are going in have become increasingly large. And this is includes for Leonard Leo. So it turns out that the D.C. Attorney General, unfortunately for the individuals now under investigation, has a background in taxes and tax law for the Department of Justice. And he decided to investigate. Now, I will say that they weren't happy that I found out about the investigation. But given that I had done the reporting in the first place, that led to a complaint to the D.C. Attorney General and the IRS, which, by the way, we don't know the IRS's investigation, investigating. They got a complaint, too. But I don't, I guess I don't have as good sources at the IRS, so I can't figure that out. So now the D.C. Attorney General is investigating whether Leo and his colleagues abused nonprofit tax laws, because, again, this is all being done, all this money being taken in and doled out for we don't know what in terms of services and we don't know how much in terms of what they keep and what they skim off the top. This is all happening at the taxpayer's expense to a certain extent because these groups are tax exempt because they're registered as charities. Holy shit. Are you writing a book? You need to write a book. I think this is more than one book, but yes, there's so many tentacles. I want to recap. I want to recap. Okay. Let's go through this. This guy named Leonard Leo who started Federalist Society. His organization is directly connected to multiple Supreme Court justices, right? He has relationships with the justices themselves and or the spouses of the justices. You have uh, spent a lot of time focused on the Federalist Society uh, and sort of you, you don't call this a conservative court, you call it a captured court. It's yes. a strong charge. I mean, you eventually said that this court is bought and paid for by the Federalist Society. 
Um, that's a strong charge. What? How do you? Uh, how do you defend it? Well, first of all, I don't think the Federalist Society was exactly the institution that did this. If you go down the hall from the Federalist Society, you see the Judicial Crisis Network, mm. which is the group that put up the ads for these uh, judges. Uh, Leonard Leo, who is a common operative between the two, runs mm -hmm. another dozen or so front groups. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing together has been um, estimated mm -hmm. to be about a $580 million spend by a bunch of right-wing billionaires. So in the same sense that in the old days, railroad barons used to mm -hmm. capture the railroad commission so it would do yeah. the decision, I think there's a very strong case to be made that that is exactly what has happened to the court right now. There seems to be a lot of unethical intermingling of political influence and judicial power. How does this affect our country? The founders never envisioned the Supreme Court to be a particularly powerful arm of government. And yet, here we are, and I would argue that they are the most powerful in our era. Within their power is laws governing our environment, laws governing weapons and the gun control problems in this country, abortion, tax law. And the group of individuals who are making the arguments and arguing before the court is small, intermingled, and very familiar with each other and with the justices. This is problematic. And, you know, we have a lot of problems with our system of our former democracy. We're the oldest when it comes to modern democracies, but that doesn't mean we're the best. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to have reforms to our system. Not my job as a reporter to advocate for reforms, but as someone who has been in D.C. for a couple of decades, and like you said, and thank you very much for beginning the interview that way, that I've seen a lot in what's happened over these past couple of decades, it sure as hell is my job to point these things out. Normally, I, I finish my interviews with the question, what gives you hope? But I think that will be the second part to this question. That will be part B. The first part is, do you have hope? Do you have hope that we will see reform, substantial, meaningful reform in our lifetime? I don't know. But for that to happen, the billionaires on the other side need to decide to do it. Because what I've also observed is a lot of billionaires who create in D.C. what we call vanity packs or um, vanity political action committees, like groups around advocating for good things. I'm saying it's bad, but environment or around guns, they're not organizing and putting their money into changing the system. There's some great ideas percolating around there, even ideas that are bipartisan. For instance, in California, you know, you have ranked choice voting. These things are imperfect. They need some help. They need some TLC, but they have good ideas. And our constitution is supposed to be a living document. We make amendments to it. There are things that we can do. But right now, the incentive system, at least in Congress, is around maintaining your sphere of power. And the way you maintain your sphere of power is to play to the people who are going to reelect you instead of telling them what you know to be true and what to be the best public policy. That's a cynical view, but it's also factual. I do think that if a group of patriotic billionaires got together and decided, 
that instead of uh, picking the next Barack Obama or creating a new social justice group, again, I am not disparaging these things. I'm just telling you what I've observed could be very helpful, that that could do a lot. And there are some out there, right? Some of the Carnegie groups, it's failing me, some of the names of these groups, but there are some groups that are interested in these systematic reforms that could be made. Well, Heidi, you give me hope and the work that you're doing gives me hope. So thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. Indulge me for a moment in a thought experiment. What if Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's husband was discovered to have been working with a major Democratic donor on the funding of left-wing political activism for several years? Say with, I don't know, right-wing villain and multi-billionaire George Soros? What would Fox do? What would the Republican Party do? They'd lose their mind. You would already have impeachment articles drawn up in the House against Justice Jackson, even though George Soros, contrary to what Republicans would like you to think, has actually done nothing wrong. Our judicial system needs to be neutral, beyond the scope of political influence. If it's not, it can't possibly fulfill its sacred duty of acting as a check and balance against the Congress and the executive branch. And yet the fierce politicking that is now a part of judicial nominations seems impossible to avoid. We have to find a way through it. We have to eliminate the role of special interest groups in shaping the judiciary. When an organization like the Federalist Society becomes so powerful that presidents commit to only nominating judges or justices of which they approve based on their ideology, that organization has a terrifying amount of power and no constitutional responsibilities. We all need to be paying attention before it's too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.